At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Like if we were playing anywhere in the world and you take 10 guys and it's like we're just playing pickup and you're not, if, let's say you don't even actually parse out the the rotation like all right you got next you got next Carmelo Anthony's staying on the court right and so we're creating a we're creating a culture where where it's not a meritocracy and and what what people want you to believe is that it's a meritocracy based on play and in the Carmelo situation it's the perfect paragon that it's not even based on play anymore it's Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talked to Ray Simboden, an Olympic foil fencer and medalist who took a knee on the podium at the recent Pan Am Games after helping the U.S. men's fencing team win gold. At that same Pan Am Games, hammer thrower Gwen Berry raised a fist and bowed her head during the Star-Spangled Banner as it neared its end. They have both been placed on 12-month probation for breaking the rules on political expression. We will talk to Ray Bowden today about why he took the knee. Also, in the news this week, if you were following it, a friend of the show and former NBA player Royce White was all over social media when he stated that it was a joke that Carmelo Anthony wasn't in the league and Jarrett Dudley was. This started a firestorm of a back and forth with other NBA players That included references to Royce White's battles for mental health care and Malcolm X. It was wild, and I wanted to get Royce on the phone and talk to him today. I also have choice words about Jay-Z and the NFL, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, but first, race and boat. Okay, so um, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, Just let's jump in. I mean, why did you choose to take that knee on the medal stand at the Pan Am Games? So, uh, for me, it was all about, um, I've actually, so just to give you context, I had taken a knee before about a year, about a year, about a year earlier, and I had zero press about it. It was just for me and my followers and for me to stand up to, you know, things that were happening in the country, the injustices that were happening around us. And, um, You know, the week before the Pan Am Games leading up to my competition was the terrible shootings in Dayton in El Paso. And it came out that the president, the president's rhetoric was some of the, you know, a direct influence of the shooter in El Paso. And then I was waiting for the waiting for the podium. And I saw a post actually from my mother that said, uh, you know, it's time for everyone to use their voice. Everyone needs to speak up. And I decided that was my time to use my voice. That was the moment that I wanted to protest. So it was that instantaneous. I mean, you you saw this post from your mom and you were just like, I need to do this. Yes, absolutely. It was something that I knew, you know, I, I, I've been outspoken about before, but it was definitely instantaneous. It wasn't like a pre-planned thought out thing like that. Wow. So, so these, um, 
So it was specifically about the shootings. I mean, were there, were there broader issues that, that had crawled inside your head that you were like, I need to make a stand, I need to use my platform to do something? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, I mean, specifically the shootings were the catalyst. So the, the idea to, that, that made me uh, actually take the knee. But, uh, you know, just I'm, you know, being aware, being aware, being aware of the injustices, seeing the racism, being influenced by people like Colin Kaepernick, um, when you see him talk about police brutality, growing up in New York, being around diversity and, and, and seeing some of the things myself. No, I know what you mean about growing up in New York. I mean, it can, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in New York City and I know it can have a strong effect on how you view the world. Yes, very much so. I was just telling people that it's, you know, we, people in New York, we we're in a bubble, you know, we're in a bubble. So we believe that we, you know, we know the entire world and, and it's not, and it's not, but uh, we have, you know, a very big melting pot of people and of backgrounds and religions and, you know, and it's nice to grow up that way and it's nice to be around it, but you, you know, you see a lot of things, you see people, you know, maybe get arrested that shouldn't be arrested. You know, you grow up on the, in, in Brooklyn and, and you see it, you see it from different, from different, uh, a different perspective. And so I think that it's important to, you know, for me to remember that I, I grew up in Brooklyn, but I was also in fencing and I went to a private school and, and it allowed me to do the sport that I love, but my sport is very, very, um, predominantly white and privileged, you know, and, and, and wealthy. So I think the big question you've probably been asked a bunch is, uh, you take this knee, what was the reaction of your teammates? Um, actually my teammates were supportive. So I asked my teammates before I took the knee. I made sure that it was okay with them. I made sure I wasn't going to um, do anything that offended them, that took away from their moment. I didn't want to do that. So I asked them and they were supportive. We talked about it afterwards. Um, You know, we were all a little bit shocked by how far the message got. You know, we were sitting there watching the tweets get, you know, get bigger and bigger once Colin retweeted it. And then once it hit uh, mainstream media. So, you know, I think we were shocked about how far it got, but they were very supportive. And were you aware that Gwen Berry was also going to raise a fist uh, during the Star Spangled Banner, a hammer thrower, medalist herself, or was that just an incredible coincidence of two people who were fed up about what was happening? Uh, no, sir. No, I didn't know that. Uh, and I actually reached out to her and showed, you know, I showed my support and, and made sure she was okay. And, and, I, and I think it's interesting that I've got so much press and I feel like she's got less uh, than me. But I've reached out. I've tried to share. I think that she's, uh, you know, very, very strong for doing so. It, it was simply coincidence. And so, uh, what is the you mentioned about getting all these tweets about Colin Kaepernick retweeting the image of you taking that knee? What what has the reaction been like generally? What kind of feedback would you have received? How do you characterize it? Um, you know, the 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 funny thing about it was right when it happened. The original response was was a lot of love and a lot of people messaging me, you know, saying thank you for sticking up for them. That I look, I don't look like them, and I'm I'm sticking up for somebody who, who isn't isn't necessarily, you know, isn't isn't the person that I am. So I was sticking up for somebody. I was sticking up for people who, who were, um, who had injustices affect them or were targeted by gun violence or. Um, you know, different situations like that. And I got a lot of messages. That was originally when it was retweeted by Colin, retweeted by people on social media inside that bubble. So I like to say that like New York bubble. Um, 
once it hit mainstream media, I began to be inundated with a lot of hateful messages. My phone got doxxed, got you know letters to my house, and just a lot of threatening and uh, you know hateful messages. So I would say it's almost now now like sixty forty probably more hateful. Now, my experience is that protesting athletes, people who use that platform to protest, they tend to have their own heroes at that intersection of sports and politics. Who are yours? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I've I've always been a huge Ali fan. Um, I'm a huge Ali fan. I've watched every Ali documentary you can possibly think of. Um, So I think that he's probably the person that would be the one that's been around the longest for me. And he obviously made his own protests and was very outspoken and very political. And I believe that uh, he was certainly an influence, but then, you know, th- you know, throughout history, we've had, we've had lots of athletes and be outspoken and be influential and be, you know, iconic. So I would say that he's at the top of my list. Now, of course, um, the, the news that broke this week is that you've been put on 12 months probation. What, what's your reaction to that? My reaction is that I am thankful that I get to do the sport uh, that I love to do, and that's that's the main thing for me. Is that I, I feel you know blessed that I get to do the, the sport that I love to do, the thing that I'm good at, and the thing that I enjoy doing every day. It gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, at the same time, I think it's you know obviously the USOC's way of saying, please don't do this again, or we'll punish you, and. I just think they're going to have a hard time with that. I think that as we move forward, the athletes will become more outspoken. I think that it it seems like this is going to be a generational thing and it's impossible to stop the, you know, politics being intertwined with sport. It's something that's always happened and always will happen. Um, While I understand that I am on probation, um, I think that it is important that athletes continue to speak out uh, and we just have to be very careful about the moment and the, uh, the platform we use. So were you expecting probation? Was this something that shocked you? Didn't shock you? You know, I, I did it purely thinking about the, the reasons that I, that I did it for. So I did it thinking about those injustices. I didn't actually, I thought about that there could be consequences, but I didn't think that there would be a probation. I didn't. I didn't actually. No, I didn't think that. Um, can that probation mean whatever they want it to mean? Like, could they say that you're violating uh, the terms of this probation, for example, just by doing this interview? Um, I mean, I, I assume they have all they have all the power. So they have all the power in the situation. So so it puts me in it puts me in a position where once you protest, once you stand up, especially in an organization you know as big as the USOC. Um, they have all the power. They can, they can say that, yes, this, I mean, I'm sure they could say that. I don't believe they will. They've been actually completely fine with me doing uh, interviews and things outside of the act of protesting on the podium. And now you've been a very successful Olympian in the past. Uh, will taking that kind of stance, I mean, could you see it affecting your ability to make the, the team for Tokyo in 2020? Uh, I hope not. I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I think that's why they gave me the warning. Uh, I think they're giving me a very clear ultimatum and they're saying that if I do this again, then it will affect my chances. But as of right now, I don't think so. 
So let's say you know you keep your nose clean for the next 12 months. Uh, you make the team. You're in Tokyo. The team medals. Have you thought about what you're going to do if you make the medal stand? Um, and you know this is one of those questions I've been asked a lot, and I think that I think it's important to know that I spoke up about the injustices. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about me planning the protest. It wasn't about me planning to be in the Pan Am Games and protesting. A lot, a lot of things can change. A lot of things can happen. And I'm going to just, I'm going to, I just know that in Tokyo, I will be very aware of the state of our country and very aware of the state of our injustices in this country as I was beforehand. So that's the main thing for me. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. So pardon me. But um, uh, so, so the, you know, I, I will be very aware of that. And, and, it's not about me planning a protest. It's not about me saying that I want to protest in Tokyo. Um, it's, it's about, you know, everyone being aware. And I think this will be a very political game. And I think that, you know, because of our president, because of the state of our country, I think that there will be a, a lot of athletes that are going to be thinking about that going into Tokyo. You know, I'm realizing that you're the, uh, the third fencer that we've actually had on this show. Um, which is oh, interesting, really? which one, one would not have said. We had Ibtahaj Muhammad um, yeah. on the show, and um, we've had, the, I don't know if you know, the, the British fencer who's been very outspoken. Um, okay. I can get his name right. Lawrence Halstead, am I getting his name Lawrence right? Lawrence Halstead, yes, yes. Yeah, Lawrence Halstead. He was very supportive of me. Yep. Fantastic. And um, is, there, is there something particular happening in fencing culture right now, or is, or is this just a happenstance? You know, I can't say. I don't like to speak for other people's, um, you know, stories. I mean, Ipti obviously is, is very personally affected by injustices, and it directly affects the people that she represents and the person that she is. So um, she has a direct connection, you know, to the stand that she took and, and deserves the, the attention she got for being, you know, the amazing, you know, ground-breaking breaking woman, Muslim woman at the Olympic Games. Um do I do I know if it's an a fencer thing? No, I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, I do know that fencers tend to be smart people, as most athletes are. But I I do believe fencers are are smart and and cunning, and we have to be very kind of like quick and and thoughtful when we're when we're competing. Um, so I don't know if that affects it, but uh, but I do I do think that we are we are. Uh, intelligent athletes and i do think that that's kind of like a, a funny thing is that athletes in, in general are usually pretty intelligent and i think that that's why we're so connected to these issues as, as a whole not just in fencing and then just one uh last question for you this is something that we ask everybody who comes on the show um particularly people who are world-class athletes like yourself uh, what, what music are you listening to these days? I mean, is music ever an inspiration to you politically, or is it just something you listen to uh, perhaps for training purposes? Uh, what what, what uh, musical foundation uh, do you? <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Brooklyn. I listened to a lot of hip-hop. I'm a huge J. Cole fan. I'm a huge Jay-Z fan, uh, even though he just signed his deal with the NFL. Um which I didn't necessarily agree with, but we'll see where that goes. And I'm, I wouldn't say I'm influenced politically. I would just say that, you know, I, I, I believe that music is the soundtrack it's to our lives. So 
music brings back memories for me. It's the thing that gets me pumped up for competition. It's the thing that reminds me of things in my childhood and growing up and all those things. So, um, yeah. And I, I got to ask you, when I first heard this story break, I was like, race in Bowdoin. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from people. Like I, for a second, I was like, is, is that his nickname? Because race in Bowdoin, yeah. fighting against yeah, yeah, yeah. racism. Uh, yeah. where, where's, where's your name come from? What, what's that about? Uh, my name is actually from a cartoon called Race Ban and Johnny Quest. My father was a big fan of the cartoon, and and uh, funnily enough, it was between Elvis and Race. So I think I got pretty lucky. I got I got, I got Race. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of hip hop, they wouldn't be able to say Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. If uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> we, we would have had an Elvis who was a hero to most, based on your stance. So, yo, yeah. thank you so much for your courage. Uh, it's no, really appreciated, you. and and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. That's Race and Bowden, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from The Nation magazine. And now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, for more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, I want you to know that you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine. And right now, we've got a special deal just for our listeners. You can save over 90% on a digital subscription and get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can get the print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 an issue. You can find it at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. And every time you support The Nation... It helps us make this podcast. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a subscriber. And now, let's talk to Royce White. So I guess just by starting, I mean, walk us through what's happened in the last week for people who've been living uh, in Dick Cheney's bunker. Well, I was at my last uh, Big Three game, uh, end of the regular season, we're out in Dallas. And, you know, we just had a, a post-game interview with Fanatics View. They had reached out to me early in the week and said they wanted to catch up with me about mental health policy because um, most of the people that have seen this coverage or have, um, you know, tuned in, chimed in, uh, are unaware of the fact that the big three and I just finalized the most comprehensive mental health policy in sports. And uh, you can tell that kind of by the coverage, not only from the clips and sound bites that went viral, but uh, ESPN themselves, uh, you know, felt the need to cover the Carmelo, you know, T versus the the original part of the interview or the, you know, the the bigger, more important part of the interview, which had to do with us creating this comprehensive policy. And that's not by accident because ESPN has always been, behind the ball when it comes to my story, number one, and bringing a fair criticism to the NBA around mental health and the sports world, you know, for that matter. So, you know, I said what I said about, about um, my feelings on Carmelo Anthony. I think that, you know, we're moving into a time period where as the, as, as new culture enters sports, where, whether you talk about analytics, whether you talk about the, the game changing or, or, you know, social media or the internet providing a platform or a foundation for the lines to be blurred around what the, what the actual merits would be for a player to be selected and kept. 
And I think Carmelo Anthony's fallen into that, and it's it's not by mistake. Um, and, and first of all, I want to say this. I only chose Jared Dudley because he plays the same position as Carmelo Anthony. And I and and I and I only chose the Lakers because of his his um, relationship with LeBron James. If it wasn't for those two things, I would have said the same thing about all thirty teams, which I did say in the clip. I I say, look, he's being blackballed culturally mm-hmm. <laughs> by the league. It's not by the Lakers specifically. And you know, you hear all the feedback, and you just start to really see, and it, it crystallizes the type of information crisis or communication crisis that we live in because. I see things like, well, LeBron's not responsible for um, for Carmelo Anthony's livelihood, or or why did the Lakers have to pick him up? There's 30 other teams. It's like, yeah, I already said that there's a full there's a there's a league wide blackball. But what I am saying is that in the case of, or the best example of a blackball would be the fact that his boy has the most power in modern sports, and the team is in need of veteran. Uh, playmaking ability as they make a championship run and um, as they as they try and figure out the the economics of the team they built due to the Anthony Davis and the salary cap and the whole nine. So it would make sense that they would be the ones first and foremost to go, hey, well, this this is a no-brainer. And the fact that in the offseason they did go sign Jared Dudley before Carmelo Anthony is absolute blasphemy. And um, you know, again, Jared Dudley, there's no disrespect to him. I don't know these guys. You got to remember, they blackballed me from the NBA, so I, I don't have no personal relationship with these guys. I met Carmelo Anthony one time when we played, uh, when, when I was with the Kings for the short time and we played against the New York Knicks. Um, I met him one time, so I don't have a dog in the Carmelo Anthony race. Jared Dudley is, is better than 99.99% of the human population that play basketball. It's just that Carmelo Anthony is 99.99% better than him at basketball. And that's, <laughs> you know, and that is, that, is a, that is a fact. Like, if we were playing anywhere in the world and you take 10 guys and it's like we're just playing pickup, and you're not – let's say you don't even actually parse out the, the rotation. Like, all right, you got next, you got next. Carmelo Anthony's staying on the court. Right. And so we're creating a, we're creating a culture where – where it's not a meritocracy and, and what, what people want you to believe is that it's a meritocracy based on play. And in the Carmelo situation, it's the perfect paragon that it's not even based on play anymore. It's based on this arbitrary measuring stick, uh, that these guys, these suits and these middlemen, um, that, that, that don't have a full understanding of the game, you know, get to use to, to justify and, and, and you know, validate all of their moves and agendas whatever those are. And uh, again, like LeBron, so for example, and then again, you know, that's Jared Duck, but LeBron, this is why I spoke on LeBron. And you know, I've said this to you personally a number of times. This whole narrative, this whole facade that LeBron is this social justice leader or activists, or this athlete of, of political power or prowess is a complete farce. And I'm not going to get too much into that now because my book is almost done on that. Me and LeBron are going to have an open letter conversation because that's how I shake the room down. Right. And that's why I'm not doing it for the publicity. 
or the clout, as they say now in the modern day. I don't even know where the word clout came from. I've been, I've been hibernating for five or six years reading Nietzsche and reading Heidegger. So uh, I don't know. I think, I, you know, I think they call it clout, but it's not for the clout. It's because somebody has to be committed to the integrity of the conversation and to the historical record. Because history is going to get very uh, muddied up as we move into a time where everybody can write something and everybody can contribute. If nobody takes the time out to create a real historical record, pretty soon we're going to look back on this entire time period and see nothing but um, nothing but minutia. Well, what makes LeBron a farce? Uh, that's the perfect example is right there. His boy is being blackballed, and and let's get something straight. There was a whole argument that popped up within 24 hours. The argument went from there's no way LeBron James is being blackballed to Stephen A. Smith getting a hold of it to him calling all his contacts, which you and I both know he has, and hearing within like 12 hours of this, 10 hours, that LeBron, that Carmelo is being blackballed. And so he confirmed that for us that GMs and coaches are behind the scenes smearing this guy's name. And then Max Kellerman, you know, because that's how they do the show, he has to play devil's advocate. He first goes out on the first segment of First Take and says, uh, well, you know, you know, if his name is being smeared behind his back, that seems unfair. But let me go ahead and play devil's advocate because this is a TV show. And then on the second segment, he starts his whole piece by going, are we to believe that Carmelo Anthony, there's some big conspiracy to keep him out? It's like, uh, yeah, Max, yeah. <laughs> actually there is. But but it doesn't have to be a big conspiracy because, you know, big conspiracy would implicate that there is some, you know, some some huge underlying reason. All I said was that he's being blackballed. And then you got your other shields like Mike Greenberg, who goes on with, with Jalen on the get up and goes, oh, well, blackballed, you know, implies something sinister. It's like, what world are you guys living in? And And so my problem with LeBron is if you're the face of the players, if you're the voice of not only basketball players, modern basketball players, but you're the voice of the modern athlete. There's no way that one of your close friends gets blackballed by a league that you're taking checks from and you don't give a fair public scrutiny of that. And a fair public scrutiny isn't saying, oh, well, you know, Carmelo definitely should be in the league or, you know, he deserves to be on the team. A fair scrutiny would say, I don't know who and where is blackballing Carmelo Anthony, but I'm going to use my power as LeBron James to find out who that is, and you're going to have to come to the public square and face the music. Mm -hmm. See, but he's not cut like that. And we all know he's not cut like that, but for what's happened is he's been propped up. He's been propped up, given a platform and, and greenlit by a white hierarchy that would love for us to be complacent with that form of leadership. Because all the leaders who went harder than that, all the leaders that, that actually have a, a shot at really, really changing the dynamic, they kill or they silence. And you know that. That's historical fact. Callan Kaepernick, out of there. They didn't, they didn't wait around to let – gone. Me, gone. And if you go back in history, it's the same exact way. Now, I haven't heard anyone else speak about Carmelo Anthony being a political casualty of the game. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, what is it about Carmelo Anthony that's led to this blackballing, I guess is a better way to ask. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's a simple blackball going on and people have to realize that there can be, that, that the NBA is stratified, right? There are different tiers of, 
of control and power in the NBA. And I don't want to harp on power because that's not even my thing. My thing was mental health. I, I came and brought a conversation that affects all levels of power, mm-hmm. from the lowest homeless guy all the way up to the, the billionaire. Um, so I don't want to harp on that. But in this situation, we have to acknowledge what is what. And the, the league is stratified in its power structure. So you've got your, your coach level, your GM level, which, as Stephen A. Smith pointed out to us very, very well, um, importantly, I think, is that some of those guys have the same representation. So there's already a little, a little, click, a little click formation in that tier. And then you've got your ownership and your ownership group and their attorneys. And their attorneys are their personal attorneys, but their attorneys are also Adam Silver and the New York office who always maintain and protect the interests of the owners from a legal standpoint and from a political and PR standpoint. So um, there's a simple blackball happening that Stephen A. Smith alluded to, which is Daryl Morey, which in the basketball world has always been known as a goof. He's always been known as an asshole. I've had five or six different agents, and every last one of them, without me um, going into much conversation with them, confirmed not liking Daryl Morey. People that I don't meet or that I don't know personally or don't have a relationship with that I meet who talk about the Rockets or Daryl Morey always say the same thing. Okay, so we'll get to that in a second. But him, him smearing Carmelo's name because Carmelo went and outed him about his lack of, of, of etiquette and ethics and respect are a main thread of this whole story. But let me give you another thread that I think people don't want to pay attention to. On the political side, Colin Kaepernick hasn't had very many true supporters. And I'll say true supporters because does their actual life in their background, in their, in their moral system, match up with the ethos of Kaepernick's message. I'm not talking about did they jump on board and go, yeah, 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 Kaepernick is right, or yeah, 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 the NFL is racist. I mean people that actually, where those, those two actually align, and there's an integrated synergy. Carmelo Anthony has been outspoken in his support of Colin Kaepernick, one of the most outspoken out of the marquee names, I'd say, mm-hmm. in the NBA. And people don't actually, people are skipping over the fact. And this is what pisses me off, too, about LeBron. And I told, I told a few NBA stars this over the last few days, and most of them agreed with me, just to let you know. Mm-hmm. I'm talking superstars. I'm talking about when free agency pops up, mountains move to grab these players. Carmelo Anthony is the only active player with the most public affiliation with the nation of gods and earth. Mm. I didn't know that. I mean, and, I definitely, I saw him march in Baltimore. I, I've seen him be outspoken. Um, Carmelo Anthony is a, is, is a Muslim. Car- Carmelo Anthony is a five percenter. I did not. I, okay. I didn't know and, and, and if, and if Carmelo Anthony doesn't appreciate me shedding light on that in this time, then me and him can have that conversation, and, and I'll listen to that, and, and, and I apologize for that. Um, all respect to the man, but I feel the integrity of the conversation is more important even than his career continuing. And I'll tell you why in a second. But 
you know, that, that's for me and Carmelo to discuss. But Carmelo's a five percenter. They know he's a five percenter. We know he's a five percenter. And let's not act like there isn't a history in, uh, of, of the NBA targeting and blackballing uh, athletes with Muslim affiliations, number one, or what they would call radical uh, black militant affiliations. Um, in, 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 in recent times, in, in recent time, I mean, you can look at, I mean, it's not, re- but you can look at Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf yeah, right there. But let's even go to Kareem. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't like what, if Kareem hadn't been Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, if he hadn't been the number one scorer in the NBA, if he, oh, hadn't, he, come from, if he hadn't come from the, 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 the John Wooden uh, 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 fabric, if he hadn't been a UCLA player, if he hadn't been, uh, a part of the Showtime Championships, he would have been out. And you and I and a whole bunch of other people know that. And now what they do, and people will, the, the automatic pushback will be this. They'll go, well, if it's about him being affiliated with the five percenters, then why haven't they, why haven't they attacked him all the time? If you really notice, Melo Anthony, with all of his skill and talent as us as, uh, and us as basketball players, knowing that, He's one of the best scorers of all time. He hasn't really been marketed that much. That's true. That's very when true. When he was in New York, when he was in New York, the New York Knicks were bad, but they were never on television. I mean, ever. Okay? Um, I mean, you would think off of the strength alone of him being that good of a player, they would be on television. I mean, come on. Okay, so, and because of the marquee matchup, just stylistically and matchup-wise, one-on-one, him versus LeBron is, is a game people want to see him versus KD, him versus, you know, this person, that person. We don't see that. We didn't see that that much from him in New York. That's number one. But number two is the blackballing doesn't usually work when everybody's watching. The blackballing works or, or, or is, is actualized when a narrative opens up and it's timely. It's timely. So they waited until his his basketball skill or his basketball value was was obviously in question by the media, and then they pounced on it the same way they couldn't blackball Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he was playing. They waited till he started to try coaching, right. and now they got him sitting behind the bench. Now they got him sitting behind the bench, way away from the way away from the head the head coach's seat, begging for a job. So let me ask, speaking of, of jobs and post-career, I was actually really surprised that some players came out very publicly on social media and ferociously against what you were saying. I mean, that was one of the things that was really eye-opening. I mean, Kendrick House Perkins. I mean, what, what, what was your reaction grows. to that? House me grows. You know, and again, Dave, you know... You know, see, this is the thing. This is what I mean about the historical documentation. It's like if you just enter the conversation and you hear what I'm saying on Twitter or you see me uh, having this dialogue, you're going to go like, man, is Royce like some pro-black social justice warrior? It's like you and I both know I've never been that. I'm not a liberal. I come from a liberal place, no doubt, but I'm not a liberal. I'm very apolitical. I give a fair um, you know, a, analysis of the conversation as it uh, pertains to the human condition in the social fabric away mm-hmm. from the politics, because mm-hmm. psychology is deeper. Psychology is deeper than the politics on the surface. 
And there's no question about that. Matter of fact, psychology is the deepest you could go. So my issue is that there still has to be a conversation about the black struggle. There still has to be a conversation about what it is to be black in this country and what the landscape is. And so as somebody who has a, a commitment to the integrity of the conversation, that dynamic is at play here, so we're going to address it. And with that, I have to talk about this house Negro thing. I'm not some, some you know, <laughs> some, some uh, modern black, you know, pro-black social justice warrior. That's not my thing. My thing is mental health. And that affects all races, genders, ages, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, but we do have to have a conversation about the black struggle still. That is important. It is important for, for the entire social fabric of this country and the world, because America is the world's leader in many regards, at least the Western world. And so with that, we have to talk about this house Negro thing. Talk about and, that. And, and the, the restraining of have, speech because of the connection with ESPN, Disney. I mean, that, that seemed like the argument you were making on social media. For me, first of all, I'll say this before I talk about House Negroes. This whole concept, this whole notion that black folks should, should um, censor our speech towards each other out of fear of the white people watching, seeing us undermine one another, or, or basically, yeah, censoring our speech um, out, of, out of fear of undermining each other in front of white folks is, is no different than censoring our speech out of fear of the lash. Mm. It, it's really no different to me, okay? It's just a modern lash. The new modern lash is the, is the, the new modern lash is the uh, microscope, uh, you'd say, you could say. The new, the new modern lash is the camera or the phone or, you know, the, the video or, or whatever the case may be. Media is the new modern lash. It's not, it's not whips anymore. It's, you know what I'm saying? That, that, that we need to get that out right now. If you have something to say about somebody and they happen to be black and you're black, you say it if it's true. Now, if you say something wrong about a fellow black person in front of white folks, you could argue that that would be, you know, that would be, way less than ideal. But we can't start to create a culture, especially for the black community, where we stop saying the truthful thing out of fear of what white people will think. That's the, that's the most backwards, twisted form of, of regression and, 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 and uh, self-doubt and, and, and uh, lack of self-value that I've heard in this whole thing. It's like, oh, no, don't say that about, about Jared Dudley or LeBron or anybody because you're undermining us in front of the white folks. The white folks can sit the fuck over there with, with their opinions because we're talking. This is about our community, right? And, and so, but that, that, comes from, from the, that comes from people posting Malcolm X but not really listening to Malcolm X. Mm. That's really so interesting. So now I want to... I want to talk about the House Negro thing Please. because I think it's very important. For me, a House Negro is said black, a House Negro. Let's say what makes you a House Negro is when um, said black person will forego a stern commitment, a stern uh, integration, a stern push of the morals and ethics of any topic or conversation 
to maintain the flow of opportunity or opportunities that are seemingly held by whatever white hierarchy is in their field or just the white hierarchy in general. So back in the day, that was, I'm the slave. I see, I see this guy get whipped. I see this guy, this, I see this woman get raped. I see this kid get, you know, get the dogs put on him. I see this person, the list goes on and on and on. And, and because of, because of my own self-interest, I'm going to sit quiet because I don't want to lose my, my uh, rations for the day. Or even more likely, I don't want to be the next to get whipped, raped, or have the dog stuck on me. So it's no different in the modern world. The only difference is, is that the black community has, has developed this culture where we say, you know, uh, you know, progress is, you know, at least if somebody else is suffering or being oppressed, I can, I can sit and watch in comfort. And before I couldn't do that, mm-hmm. I can sit and watch with the perception of equal rights. I can sit and watch with the perception of civil rights. I can sit in an apartment or I can still go back to work with the white folks. As long as I can go back to work with the white folks, sit on the bus with the white folks and, and talk with the white folks and they can't openly call me nigger then it's okay for him to get treated like that um, because, you know, I'm not really, I'm willing to risk some things, but I'm definitely not willing to risk most things and, and certainly not everything. And so that goes for your LeBron James. And that goes for Kendrick Perkins and guys like that. Guys, it, it's the same thing. There, there's a narrative that pops up. Like I said, it, it was easy for people to support Kaepernick because the lines were so well drawn. You got Donald Trump on one side. You got the NFL, who's, who's been historically racist on one side. An NFL that hit concussion research, which people have conveniently stopped talking about for the most part. Um, and then you got Cap, who made a completely valid statement about what's going on in the, the uh, police-civilian relations in the street that we're all seeing on TV and, and on our phones and everywhere else, sometimes in person. And uh, the, the lines were drawn easy there. It wasn't hard to back cat in that situation if you're black. What's hard is to talk about the people that oversee the masters of your own ecosystem, the masters of your own industry and field. And LeBron has done nothing but shill for the NBA in calling them progressive. And he knows that ain't true because they're blackballing his boy right now for his Islamic affiliations. And Kendrick Perkins is no different. You're taking a you're taking a check from Walt Disney. And he even the, the scary part is and this is this is what scares me the most. They don't even see when they've been weaponized with their own person. These house Negroes today, they're walking around like they believe they're field Negroes. They actually believe that. They've actually convinced themselves in their head that if they go out and support cap on paper, that they don't need to uphold the morals and ethics uh, uh, in, in reality. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just patently dangerous. It's dangerous for the black community. And by way of it's dangerous for the rest of society, because the black community needs leadership. It needs to calibrate itself to bring a, a harmony and a clarity to the rest of these conversations, because as a country, America had two, two original sins. One was with the native Americans. The second was with, with the slaves. And those two things need to, to come need to come full circle. Exactly. And we're missing one. We're missing one. One is impossible because the natives are almost gone. Okay. So, so one, one original sin 
it, it is is not even uh, repairable. The other one is for the, the, the most influential people in the black community, economically, uh, um, impact-wise, to come into a real political acumen, a real political constitution, a real political movement. And that's our athletes and entertainers. And, and, and instead of doing that, they're walking around at ESPN just like, yeah, you know, Walt Disney, we'll say whatever, we'll say whatever's okay for us to say. We're not going to say anything. Like, even the word blackballed, they're like all in a tizzy about that. Like, yeah, you can't say Carmelo's being blackballed. You're, you're making it worse for him. I, I got to ask, I really do appreciate your time and you making this clear. Um, I got to ask, are, are you concerned at all about any sort of league reentry prospects for yourself with you making these statements? I mean, come on, you. I mean, you already know that's. Oh yeah. That's that's off the table almost. <laughs> but you, I mean, you know, you're, you're killing it in the three on three. I mean, the the tape of you on it's gone online. I mean, you talk about like who are the best players in the world, the best point zero zero one percent. Royce White is one of those players. And it's yeah. Not well, I mean, I didn't even. I didn't even see that. I didn't even want to. I didn't even want to make. I didn't even want to make any of this stuff about me because that's the other easy out. People are finding the easy outs all over the place. Oh, Royce is just bitter. He's just mad. He's not in the league. It's like, well, if you really take a look at it, and I appreciate Yahoo Sports for this because um, they've been pretty much telling us straight for like the last year and a half now, since I was in Canada even, maybe two years now. Um, if you look at the history here, I was blackballed. And I was blackballed for something even simpler uh, than Carmelo Anthony, right? Like I don't have a, I don't have a five percent or a religious affiliation. I don't have, uh, and, and another thing, play-wise, you can't say that I'm a selfish player or a scorer or I'm a volume shooter. You can't say any of those things. Matter of fact, I'm the most modern power forward that I I created the modern forward, power forward template. <laughs> it's like Draymond like Draymond Green. Yeah, I was. You know what I'm saying? Like these are the facts. So, of course, you know I was. You know I, I'm actively being blackballed as well. And of course, anything that I say will 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 lend itself to that. And um, you know that's part of the problem. And and see here here's my final thing I'll say is why this is all important. That's why I appreciate the, the ethos of of the podcast that you do and the perspective you bring from the beginning of this whole thing six years ago, seven years ago. Sports is not just sports. We all want to believe that because it's the place we go to detach. And that's what you heard a lot of people say about Kaepernick. I don't want to go to the football game and have to hear politics. Well, the politics are there whether you're hearing them or not. Okay. And the sports world is a representative of a global corporate community. That's the part of the, that's the part of the interview they didn't want to go viral is me talking about the sports world being a representative of a global corporate community. And as such, the morals and ethics may be the most important thing that we could actually be discussing with sports because everybody's there across so many industries. And the second thing is that sports has become the new religion for, for the children and certainly for the adults. There's a full blown uh, uh, idolatry uh, 
in the following and fanaticism of sports. And so with that being said, it is important that they would blackball Carmelo Anthony. It is important that they would blackball me. And, and it's important why they would do it. It's important why they would do it. Uh, and, and so, you know, in, in my situation, the black ball is there, and they can use anything I say now to further it. But that's a problem because what they should be able to do is the same thing we need to do in America is just clarify the conversation, uh, make amends, uh, be honest. I mean, be real honest. Honest where it starts to compromise you, where it starts to compromise your position in a fundamental way. Yes, 450 years of slavery is a problem, and the ramifications live today. They live today in the minds and hearts of black people. They, they, they're alive in the hearts and minds of everyone else because sin doesn't just, just go away with time. That's a fallacy. And we know that through psychology, there's a real living trauma. There's a real living trauma in the hearts and minds of black people in this country. And the NBA doing shit like this where they continue to blackball me every, you know, as soon as the narrative allows, and oh, oh, he said we're blackballing Carmelo, so now, you know, uh, you know, that's another strike against him. That's the shit that'll never let us, let, let us calibrate this, this society. No, well put. Yo, Royce, I really do appreciate the time. I mean, I think you've made this crystal clear. I hope everybody who followed the sort of Twitter drama of the last week actually listens to this interview, and I'm going to fight to make sure that happens just so people know where it is you're actually coming from. I appreciate you, man, as always. No, appreciate you very much. That's Royce White, ladies and gents. Listen to those words, rewind, listen to them again. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words about Jay-Z and the NFL. Okay, look, the worlds of sports, social justice, and hip-hop are still reeling from the news that Sean Jay-Z Carter, the rap legend and self-branded socially conscious billionaire, has entered into a partnership with the NFL to be the league's live music entertainment strategist. Carter also plans to help direct the NFL's Inspire Change initiative. But there was Sean Carter, grinning from ear to ear, giving an equally toothy Roger Goodell a big pound and a hug before they sat for their press conference to announce this powerhouse alliance. With the subtlety of a blowtorch, they staged this presser on the third anniversary of Colin Kaepernick's first anthem protest. The message was clear. This was about turning the page on Kaepernick and any protest that would directly confront racism, either in the NFL or on the platform that the league provides. Carter addressed this explicitly, saying, We forget that Colin's whole thing was to bring attention to social injustice. 
In that case, this is a success. This is the next phase. There are two parts of protesting. You go outside and you protest, and then the company or the individual says, I hear you, what do we do next? End quote. This is Jay-Z's analysis of how change happens. You pressure corporate power until it becomes woke, and then they bring you in as a partner to enact social change. Jay-Z was blessing the sincerity of the newfound social consciousness of a league that bankrolls Donald Trump, still resists hiring black coaches, and black boss Colin Kaepernick. Jay-Z drove the point home saying, for me, it's like action, an actionable item. What are we gonna do with it? Everyone heard, we hear what you're saying, and everybody knows I agree with what you're saying. So what are we going to do? You know what I'm saying? Help millions and millions of people or we get stuck on Colin not having a job. No reporters in attendance asked just how millions and millions of people were going to be helped by this partnership or why people, quote unquote, get stuck on Kaepernick's unemployment. No one pointed out that it's not about one man's job, it's the idea that the league feels empowered to take your livelihood if you dare step out of line. The immediate reviews of this shotgun marriage in some quarters were, to put it mildly, unkind. David Dennis Jr., writing for Playboy, called it a gut punch. The headline in the New York Daily News was, Jay-Z sold fire in hell and sold Colin Kaepernick out. Jamel Hill wrote in The Atlantic, Jay-Z has given the NFL exactly what it wanted, guilt-free access to black audiences, culture, entertainers, and influencers. Colin Kaepernick's most ardent supporter in the NFL, Carolina Panthers safety Eric Reed, slammed Jay-Z saying, when has Jay-Z ever taken a knee? For you to get paid to go into an NFL conference and say we are past kneeling is asinine. One could only imagine Roger Goodell and the collection of NFL owners exchanging awkward high fives as Carter caught all the flack. It's what Jay-Z was being paid to do. In the days afterwards, however, the news leaked that Sean Carter would soon become a part owner of an NFL team, with designs on eventually being the first black owner in the most exclusive billionaire boys club in all the land. This earned him defenders saying that Carter had been playing some kind of three-dimensional chess because he was leveraging this social justice alliance to acquire a groundbreaking trailblazing status in the ranks of this historically hyper-restricted club of the 1%. So was Sean Carter a sellout or just a brilliant businessman creating progress by breaking into these rarefied corridors of power? The truth, I believe, is actually much more banal. None of this is about social justice. It's not about, as Sean Carter put it, helping millions and millions of people. This partnership is happening because Sean Carter is a billionaire who wants to be an NFL owner and erasing Colin Kaepernick is the price of admission. Now Sean Carter gets to multiply his fortune and the NFL believes they will no longer be branded as racist or have to schedule skim milk Super Bowl halftime shows headlined by Maroon 5. Jay-Z is a boss. Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed are workers. It is in the interest of workers of the NFL to unite and say that blackballing people for their political beliefs is never going to be okay. It is in the interest of workers to stand up for their colleague. It is in Sean Carter's interest to stand up for himself. It's not millions and millions who are going to be helped. It's one person. It's Jay-Z's ultimate hustle. 
Ahasili told us over 20 years ago, we were never to knock. As Eric Reed said when the news broke, Jay-Z claimed to be a supporter of Colin, and now he's going to be a part owner. It's kind of despicable. It is despicable. It's also the reality of doing business. Colin Kaepernick is a worker. Sean Carter is a boss. Better to have clarity on that question than the idea that billionaires will ever lead social movements in anyone's interests other than their own. And now it's time for the part of the show where we hand out our awards that just stand up and just sit your ass down awards for people who are standing up in the world of sports and for people who really do need to sit down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to two NFL players, Josh Norman and Demario Davis. And I can't believe this wasn't a bigger story. See, Norman and Davis, they covered the $50,000 bail of a protesting undocumented immigrant who makes $20,000 a year as a farm worker. His name was Jose Bello, and he was released from an ICE jail in Bakersfield after 89 days. He was arrested after reading a poem that he wrote at a Kern County board meeting. The poem was called Dear America, and a couple of the, of the verses are this. He wrote, we demand our respect. We want our dignity back. Our roots run deep in this country. Now that's a true fact. So he reads a poem at a board meeting, and ICE immediately scoops him up, puts him in this horrific prison for an 89 days, and he doesn't get out until Josh Norman and Demario Davis pay the bail that he in no way, shape, or form could have afforded. $50,000 bail for someone who makes $20,000 a year. And one of the things that Josh Norman said afterwards was, Jose Bello was exercising a fundamental right that we pride ourselves on. If he was detained for reciting a peaceful poem, then we should ask ourselves, are our words truly free? So Just Stand Up Award goes to you, Josh Norman. It goes to you, Demario Davis. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the coach of the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores. People might know the story at this point. Uh, Kenny Stills, outspoken wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins, someone who still takes a knee during the anthem to protest racial inequity, someone who still stands up for the legacy of Colin Kaepernick. Kenny Stills, very outspoken on the question of Jay-Z's new partnership with the NFL that we spoke about before. Uh, very outspoken in terms of wanting to know why Jay-Z thinks he can erase Colin Kaepernick's legacy. And Brian Flores at the next practice after Kenny still spoke out, he started the practice by playing eight straight Jay-Z tracks while the media was all in attendance to try to shake Kenny Stills up on the field. And a lot of players, they took that as Brian Flores telling Kenny Stills to just shut up and play. And that's a wild thing if you think about it, weaponizing the music of Jay-Z as a way to tell Kenny Stills to just shut up and play. That says something stunning about where we are. You know, hip-hop, which traditionally has been seen as such a rebel music, can be used as a way to try to shut somebody down. And by the way, shout out to Kenny Stills for in the locker room the next day, what was he playing? He was playing Nas. And if you know anything about the historic beef between Jay-Z and Nas, then you also know that Kenny Stills was responding in a very, very forthright manner. So please, sit your ass down, Mr. Brian Flores. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's show. 
Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, Race and Bowden. Thank you, Royce White. Thank you to those two rebel rabble-rousing Royces and, and races for coming here to speak about what is happening in the world of sports. For everybody out there listening, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Please keep up with me on Twitter at edgeofsports. You can always hit me up if you have any questions about the show. Please, you can send an email to edgeofsports at gmail.com if you've got your own nominees for Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.